so the issues of sexual assault, abuse, and harassment that we're experiencing in our culture today has never been so public. These are not new issues, but they have become a part of the national conversation. I believe they entered into that conversation in an elevated way during our last presidential campaign when our current president was caught on tape saying lewd and inappropriate things about women. Regardless of how you voted, regardless of what political party you adhere to, regardless of your view on the new tax plan, or regardless of how the Dow Jones is hitting record numbers, we can all agree that his words were crude, demeaning, undefendable, and unacceptable. These comments in that social context seems to have been an ignition for what's happening today. First, the chairman and CEO, and then the host of a top-ranked news program on a conservative cable network were fired over allegations of sexual harassment and years of cover-up and millions of dollars in payoffs. Then the focus moved to a staunch liberal Hollywood producer whose decades-long open secret of, of, of power and perversity and abuse all brought to light by an actress sick of the hypocrisy. Her courage opened the doors for many others to come forward and share their stories And many have come forward. In fact, today in social media, there's a two-word hashtag, hashtag MeToo, that has become a movement to denounce sexual assault and harassment. Now, many victims are, are speaking up and bringing down celebrities from Hollywood, celebrities in business, television news anchors, entertainers, and politicians. In fact, we have now learned that we have been paying for a congressional fund that is used in part to silence accusations for our lawmakers or at least pay some of the legal fees. All of a sudden, these secrets have become front page news and top stories on news outlet apps. So the question that I want to deal with today is this. How did Jesus address the issue of sexual assault, abuse, and harassment we find in our country today? If he's only a baby in a manger, if he's only seasonal, if you just come and worship him through Christmas carols and concerts and children's events and gifts giving, then we don't have to deal with this issue because what he says doesn't really mean anything, right? But if he is who he said he was, if he is the God of the universe, if he is the eternal God who took on flesh, if his kingdom is everlasting, then what he says speaks to the relevant issues of today. And his words are just as relevant today as they are when they were first written down. And when we learn what Jesus has to say, 
then we can respond with confidence. We can respond to our friends. We can respond to our associates. We can respond to those in our networks. We never have to be ashamed because it's not our judgment. It is the words of the one we follow. His name's Jesus. And when we learn what Jesus has to say, then we can teach our children and we can use this opportunity. We can use every opportunity to demonstrate to them what Jesus has to say about what they're hearing in the news and reading on their smartphones and thinking about at school and on the bus and hearing about in the locker room and, yes, even in middle school sleepovers. You see, when we understand what Jesus has to say, who always speaks to the issues of our day, then as his followers, we can stand with boldness and share a message of clarity and confidence a message that's transformed our life and can transform the life of others. Let's pray before we open God's Word. Father, we need your help as we look at this topic today, this topic that is front-page news. I pray, Father, that you would speak to our heart. For some of us, we need clear direction. For some of us, we need the words to say to family or friends or children. For some of us, Lord, we need to deal with this issue right in our own lives. And so, Father, whatever the application of your word is, drive it home into our hearts today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> to deal with the issue that we see in today's newspaper, we have to go back to the beginning. When God, in the beginning, created sex. Sex is God's concept. It is his design. It is his plan. And sex is the strong drive that he hardwired into every man and woman, this strong drive that involves our mind, that involves our emotions, and that involves our body. Sex is such a strong drive drive that in his word from the beginning to the end, God puts stories of sexual encounters, sometimes for the positive, sometimes for warning. He instructs us clearly on the route we should go in this powerful drive. And he gives us warnings that we need to adhere to to keep from destroying ourselves and destroying our families. This drive is so strong that God commits an entire book of the Bible to the issue of sexuality, the Song of Solomon, sex within the marriage relationship. God instructs us on sex so that we can experience its power and that we can experience its pleasure, and then he gives us the instruction to do that in a way that honors him because, after all, it's his idea. And when we remove sex from a, from a God-ordained context, we are living with a nuclear warhead strapped to our body, and we are in an orbit that will destroy ourselves and others. Now, God created sex for two reasons. First, sex is a powerful, powerful mental emotional and physical act reserved for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. I want to say that again. 
God's ordination of sex is reserved for a man and a woman committed to each other in marriage. God designed the body of the man and the woman in such a way that they can actually physically experience a oneness in the very act of sex. And sex is spiritual. It's designed by God as a spiritual glue, as an emotional glue that allows a man and a woman married, committed to each other, to come together in a powerful physical intimacy. It's God's great gift. And he gives us a place to to experience it to the fullest. Second, the act of sex allows for a man and woman to bring a new person into the world. But not just a new person. A living, eternal soul at conception. This living, eternal soul begins, and it needs to be nourished, and it needs to be taught. And he allows us to keep the human race going. The human race depends on sex between a man and a woman. And then he allows us as Christians to take this little life, this great gift from him, and teach it, nurture, and show that life. Not just tell that life, but to show that little life, that little boy, that little girl, what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Now, in the beginning... Sex for Adam and Eve was perfect every time. In their relationship, there was never an abuse of power. It was never used as an instrument of guilt. It was never used to threaten. It was never forced. It was never withheld as a power play. Adam and Eve experienced fully God's design and purpose for sex. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Then the man said, when the woman was created, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Therefore, this is interesting, Moses is writing Genesis. He, he could be writing it during the wilderness uh, wanderings of the Israelites. Uh, This is years after the creation, obviously. Marriage is now part of the culture, and it's as if God is, uh, Moses is saying, as a parenthesis, hey, that's why, because God created man and woman to be together for life, that's why we do this marriage thing. That's why we do marriage. Therefore, a man and a woman shall leave his father and his mother, shall be united to or hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh emotionally, spiritually, missionally, and physically. Check out this last line. And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Completely vulnerable, completely open, completely exposed, and there was no shame, there was no guilt That's Genesis chapter 2. Now, right after Genesis chapter 2 comes what? Genesis chapter 3. Every time. (laughs) And Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie. And in open, willful rebellion, they ate fruit from the tree in the middle 
of the garden. They had everything they could ever want, everything they could ever need, a perfect environment. And yet, God wired them in a way where they could make a choice, and they did. Chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then, check this out, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Think about that. Their eyes were open. Satan had promised them divine enlightenment, right? You're going to be like God. And they did get additional knowledge, but the knowledge they got was evil. And now, mistrust and alienation replace security and intimacy. And isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting that the very first thing they did, the very first thing they did was to cover their exposed sexual parts. From Genesis chapter 3 on, sex between a man and a woman in marriage, God's way, even in our brokenness, even in our sinfulness, is still a powerful gift for intimacy and pleasure and, and spiritual glue of a marriage and procreation. But now in a fallen world, this powerful drive in a sinful heart is used by men and women and women who oppose God to abuse, to seduce, to betray, to blackmail. Today, sex apart from God's ordained design is forced. That's called rape. It is sold. That's called prostitution. And young children, in our perverse world, young children around the world are trafficked as sex slaves. And sex is so powerful. It is so universal. It is so appealing that it's used to sell everything from inappropriate products to entertainment to shaving cream. Much of today's humor is laced with sexual innuendos, if not graphic content. Sex in the hands of people who have put God out of their sight and out of their mind is a dangerous thing. It always has been. From Genesis chapter 3, it always will be until Christ returns and establishes his perfect kingdom again. Now, don't forget, Jesus was right there in the beginning, right? He's not this little baby that just came to existence in a manger. He is the God of the universe. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, for by him all things were created, including sex. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through 
Jesus and for Jesus, and Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. Jesus created sex. It's his concept. It's his design. It's his plan. And he is not silent on the topic. In fact, in the first recorded sermon that we have of Jesus, he addresses it head on. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 27 and 20 through 30. As you're turning there, let me set the context. These large crowds had gathered, and Jesus went uh, up the side of a mountain so he would have the, the place, he could, he could speak to them and they could all hear. He, that day, even though there were large crowds, a lot of times people today when they have a large crowds, they don't want to say anything to offend anyone, right? We want to be seeker sensitive. But Jesus was never afraid of offending anyone. In fact, when the largest crowds were there, that's usually when he addressed things in the most challenging way. And on that day, with these large crowd there, he addressed everything from anger to materialism to retaliation to the golden rule to loving your enemies to giving to the needy to prayer to fasting to anxiety to judging others and he even addressed the eternal tragedy of thinking you're a Christian but you're not. Then with that those, that content out, he drove it home with a story about two builders. Remember that? The foolish builder built his house on the sand, and, and when the storms came, the house just went down like that. Great was the crash. Jesus said, that is a picture of the person who hears my words but never puts them into practice. Then he said, the person who hears my words and puts them into practice is like the wise builder and he takes his time and he learns the word and he knows what I said and he puts it into practice and he's the one who digs down and he puts his house on the very bedrock, the foundation. And when the winds come, when the storms come, and when we live in a culture that's opposed to us, it can blow against us, it can push us, but we will stand firm because we are in solid ground. We know God's word. We have a passion for it, and we're going to act it out in our lives. In that section, in that sermon, rather, Jesus had a section on what we're looking at in the headlines of our newspapers today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Let me read through it, and then we'll go back. We'll go back through each verse. Jesus said, you have heard it was said You shall not commit adultery. So the first thing he does is to take what he's going to say and he grounds it back in the Old Testament. Here's what the Old Testament says, and I got something else for you. You've heard it says, Seventh commandment, shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her and his heart. That's some tough teaching, isn't it? It's not just about your hands anymore. It's about the heart. Jesus begins with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And the word adultery encompasses any sexual encounter outside covenant of marriage. Any sexual encounter outside the covenant of marriage. If you're a teenager and you're involved in premarital sex, you are living in open rebellion against God. And you got to stop it. It's a dangerous place to be. 
open rebellion against God. If you're a single adult of any age involved in sex with another person, you are living in violation of God's instruction, pure and simple. You're looking at God and saying, I love the Christmas carols, but I'll do what I want to do with my life when I want to do it. Yeah, you've given me a strong desire, and I'll decide how I want to play that desire out. If you're living together, you're in violation of this commitment of marriage between a man and a woman. Yeah, but we live in separate rooms. Baloney. How naive do you think people... Yeah, but see, if we get married, then we lose some money. Were you going to obey God or the God of money? If you're a married person involved in a sexual encounter outside the covenant of marriage, you're sinning against God. You're sinning against another person made in God's image. And you are sinning against your spouse. In the midst of today's sexual storm, the line of acceptability is drawn when two people say, well, we were having consensual sex. It was all consensual, as if that makes it right. But the only sex God consents to is between a man and a woman in the covenant and the commitment of marriage. Any other sexual encounter outside of that is sin. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage, the commitment of a man and a woman for life. Remember what marriage is? You stand up here and you say, for better or worse, no one's forcing me to do this. I'm doing this voluntarily. I love this person. And in front of God and witnesses, I will say, for better or worse, I don't know what's going to come. I don't know how I'm going to feel tomorrow. I don't know the situations in my life, but I'll tell you this, for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's to be held in high honor. Let the marriage bed... That's just a metaphor, a figure of speech for sexual intimacy. Let the marriage bed, let sexual intimacy within marriage be undefiled. You don't defile that. That's a precious gift of God. That's a covenant. That is a covenant you made with your spouse. And you said, I'm going to protect that covenant. I'm going to nourish that covenant. Everything else is off the table. Every other person's off the table. Every other picture of a person is off the table. I got eyes for you only. If you don't do that, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If you go against God in this area or any area, there's judgment. There's consequences. Does that mean you lose your salvation as a believer? No. Does it mean you might blow up your family? Yes. Does it mean God will forgive you? Yes. Does it mean you may spend Christmas alone? Yeah. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32 says, A man who commits adultery lacks sense. 
Whoever does so destroys himself. Now in a world where people of hubris and power touch and grope and demand sexual favors, in a world where men and women are willing to appear naked on a movie screen and we pay to go watch them pretend to be acting out this beautiful gift that God has given. In a world where the inappropriate sexual messages and images are pushed into our homes via television and internet, in a world that ridicules those who committed to purity, in that world, in that culture we live in, sex outside of marriage is still judged. In that culture we live in, everyone else may be doing it, but a person who's involved in it still lacks sense. And the person intent on doing things his way or her way will end up destroying himself or herself. That's just the way sin works. You sow, you reap what you sow. When you step outside of God's plan, you've entered into a dangerous land of enemy territory. Adultery includes any sexual encounter outside the covenant of marriage. But then Jesus, amazingly, convictingly, for every person, goes a step farther, doesn't he? But I say to you, but I say to you, don't pat yourself on the back if you haven't groped a woman. But I say to you, don't pat yourself on the back if you haven't committed adultery physically because I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, that's some tough teaching, isn't it? And there's not a person in this room who hadn't been there. This verse applies to every one of us. The word lust means to long for, desire, to crave. It's an obsession for something. And you say, um, I know, it's a temptation, I get it, and it's a strong desire and this gift of God, but man, we live in this culture where I can't even, I can't even click on USA Today and, and, and not see something that's tempting to click over and look at. I, I can't even drive down the road and there be a billboard. I can't even watch a commercial on television. It's the culture we live in. That's the problem. No, that's not the problem. Job, one of the oldest books of the Bible. Job, without a computer, without a smartphone, without even the printed page called lust, a fire that burns to destruction. Job. 31.1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. You see, Jesus says, it's not just about your hands. Certainly that's a problem. But it all starts in your heart. Matthew chapter 15, for out of the heart, Jesus said, come evil desires, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, 
These are what defile a person. That's the issue. When a person commits adultery, there's a conclusion we can make. They weren't taking care of their heart. When a person commits adultery, there's a conclusion we make. Long before the physical act, there was something burning in their heart. There was a lust that was burning, and the physical act is just acting out what's been going on, a sinful sin that's been going on in their heart for a long time. Pornography the same way. Things we have to deal with. Our actions demonstrate our actions demonstrate what's turning inside of us. If we allow our sinful thoughts and desires to be cultivated and grow, and all of us are broken, and all of us have sinful desires and thoughts. And everyone is convicted by Matthew 5, 28. It's the issue of letting it cultivate. It's the issue of nourishing it. It's the issue of feeding the lust. So what do we do? How do we respond to what's going on in our culture? How do we as Christians, first of all, right, got to deal with, we got to deal with it in our, in, our, in our own hearts first. Now, how do we respond to what's going on? Guys, we have a tremendous opportunity here. The world is seeing what happens when you don't do things God's way. And we have an opportunity to tell them, here's what God says. This is a this is. This is a tremendous opportunity. So the first thing we need to do is pray. We need to pray that we would be ready, that we would be ready to share the truth and love, that we would be confident in what we know to be true, that we would be willing to look someone in the eye and say, here's what God says. We need to pray for those victims in this area, that they would not find their healing in a therapist or a psychologist, but would find their healing in Jesus Christ alone, the only one that can heal and transform a heart. We need to be praying for those predators out there and pray that God would get a hold of them and that they would repent and they would ask his forgiveness and they would see his grace. And you're saying, as I am saying sometimes, man, when these, when these people come down, it's kind of fun to watch, isn't it? God, did I just say that? But Jesus says, Verse 43 of that same sermon. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your neighbor, or love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and, and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those and if you pray for those who only love you and who only pray for you, I'm adding the word prayer in there. What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? We need to pray that families would be restored. And we need to pray that God will use what's going on in our culture, this, this abuse of sex, this sexual reckoning, to drive people back to his true design of sex. What a tremendous opportunity. So secondly, we need to speak into this subject with truth and love. Not in a judgmental way, but with truth and love. Not in our opinions. We speak what God says. That's our job. 
We are to speak what God says. And that first means you've got to know what he says. You've got to believe what he says. And you've got to be courageous enough to step out and say, this is what God says. We have a great opportunity in our country. You know, used to, people didn't want to be called prudish, right? There are a lot of people right now who would die to be described as prudish. What a great opportunity we have to teach our children. You see, this is what happens when you allow this great gift of God to be misused or to misuse it in your own life. What a great opportunity to speak to family and friends about the, about the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And we ought to be praying right now that in our Christmas get-togethers in an appropriate way, in a gentle way, in a way of love, God gives us an opportunity to speak to that person in our family about the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And maybe he'll use this topic to bring up the subject. You're going to be ready for that. Now, I've got to warn you. When you speak out on these issues, you might take some shots, right? So when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was, uh, was the ruler. He ruled all of, all of Palestine. In fact, he's the one. When Jesus was born, remember the wise men went, and they said, where's this king, where's this baby-born king of the Jews? And he was so jealous, so evil, that he had all the baby boys, two years old and younger, put to death, hoping that he would kill or expecting to kill Jesus. After he died, the Palestine was uh, divided into quadrants. And so the ruler over one quadrant was a guy named Herod Antipas, a son of Herod. Herod Antipas was actually the, the one who tried Jesus when Jesus was on trial. Well, Herod Antipas fell in love with his sister-in-law. Remember the story? Her name was Herodias. And uh, they moved in together. Talk about living together. They... Scripture says they were living together. Well, John the Baptist said, you shouldn't do that. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to mock God. You took your brother's wife, for goodness sake. You're living with someone, not your wife. You can't do that. Well, Herod wasn't used to people telling him what he couldn't do. And so he had John put in prison. He was going to kill John. He wanted to kill John, but John was very popular, and John the Baptist was very popular. And again, this is just at the time of Jesus, right? John was very popular, so he said, I can't kill him. I'm just going to put him in prison. You know the rest of the story. There was a night when they had a big party, and Herodias' daughter, Salome, danced a dance. We can only imagine it was erotic and it was sexual. And Herod Antipas said, was so taken by it, he said, I'll give you anything in my king, up to half my kingdom. Remember what you wanted. I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. So it doesn't always end well, does it? You ever notice that? Contrary to most of the things you read, it doesn't always end well when you stand up for Christ. But man, would you want to be any place else than standing up for Christ? Thirdly, protect yourself from yourself. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, <clears throat> Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart. Another translation, guard your heart with all vigilance, 
for from it flows the springs of life. Again, remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew 15. It's back to your heart. That's where it all starts. This, the center of your, of your thinking and your emotions and your will. Guard that. Pour scripture into it. That's why you got to be in God's word. That's how you guard your heart. That's how you hear from him. That's where he tells you you're off base. You need to think about this. You need to stop that. You need to start that. Guard your heart. You remember when Vice President Pence said that he did not dine alone with another woman other than his wife or attend events where alcohol was served without his wife. Remember when he said that? He was ridiculed for being old-fashioned, and out of touch, even untrusting of women. In fact, the Christian community, a writer for Christianity Today, Caitlin Beatty, wrote a column for the New York Times called A Christian Case Against the Pence Rule. Here's what she wrote. Offering the Pence Rule as a solution to male predation is like saying, I can't meet with you one-on-one, otherwise I might eventually assault you. She continued, I know many Christians who keep some version of the pence rule. These men have good motives, but it's time for men in power to believe their female peers when they say that this rule hurts more than helps. She contended, and there's a point to it, she contended that if this rule goes forward, women will be left out of important meetings and important decisions. Well, There's a pretty easy fix to this, isn't there? You just bring someone else into the meeting. You don't meet alone with someone not your wife. If it's a meeting that another woman needs to be in, you bring someone else into the meeting. The pinch rule is not about being accusatory of women or being accusatory of men. The pinch rule is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. By the way, this is a rule that Billy Graham used for the uh, Billy Graham Evangelic, uh, Evangelistic Association for all those years. You couldn't be alone with another woman, not your wife. And when Graham's wife died in 2007, they had been married for 64 years of scandal-free relationship. Now think about that there were people trying to bring Graham down. And yet he, he knew that, and he knew his own heart, so he, so he guarded his heart. 64 years of scandal-free marriage. The, the pence rule is what Jesus says here in verses 29 and 30. If, you're, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And he doesn't mean that literally. It's figuratively. If you are seeing something, if you're letting something into the window of your mind and your heart that's going to flow out in your actions, stop it. Don't do that anymore. Be smart enough to stop it. If your hand causes you to sin, if you're doing something that's causing you to sin, you cut it, you stop it. You cut out those things that are causing you to do that. This is not rocket, guys, this is, men and women, this is not rocket science, is it? You just stop doing stupid stuff. That's basically the pence rule. Be smart enough to guard your heart. Be smart enough to
to know. I've, I've, had, I've only had one person, I've had one person look me in the eye and say, adultery, that could never happen to me. And guess what? It did. And if anyone in this room thinks it can't happen to you, you are on a slippery slope. A slippery slope of hubris and pride that will cause you to fall. Be careful, Scripture says, lest, when you're stand, lest you think you're standing that you fall. So we're not going out there with this pride saying it can't happen to us. We're saying, yes, it can happen to anyone in this room. And we're going to guard our hearts And we're going to do that with vigilance. And we're going to set things around us. And we're going to stop looking at pornography. And we're going to make certain that if there's any issue in a relationship at work, it stops. We cut that off. We end that relationship. We ask for a transfer to another department because we would rather honor God than blow our family up. One more thing. Basically said it. Put the brakes on any dangerous course. Is there any dangerous course going on in your life? Pornography, inappropriate relationship, emotional adultery. Dennis and Barbara Rainey write in their book, Staying Close, people commit emotional adultery before they commit physical adultery. Emotional adultery is unfaithfulness of the heart. It starts when two people of the opposite sex begin talking with each other about intimate struggles doubts or fears. They start sharing their souls in a way that God intended exclusively for the marriage relationship. See, it's just not sex in the marriage relationship. It's your heart that needs to stay there. And you don't share stuff that's intimate and emotional with other people, not your spouse. Well, they're a good friend. No, your spouse is your best friend. Keep it there. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So um, our son Garrison had this school project, and he built this house thing uh, out of cardboard, held it together with duct tape on our porch. And uh, this was uh, some years ago, and, and after the project was long over, the house was duct tape was still on our front porch. And so it was Easter time, and Lori said, Garrison, we're having people over. Get that thing off the front porch. So it was on a Saturday, and he started tearing it down, and he pulled it over. We had kind of a wraparound porch, and he pulled it over to the side. And also at that time, he was uh, enamored by fire, and... Um, he, 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 had this, he, he had this question in his mind he needed to settle. Does duct tape burn? <laughs> and it does. It burns. And so before he knew it, he had caught all this cardboard and duct tape on fire on the side of our porch. We had neighbors coming over saying, your porch is on fire. You got to do something about it. So, so Garrison um, worked on it. As he tells the story later, he was panicking at this time. It was, like, it was kind of coming up. 
It burned our porch badly and even the top of the ceiling. But he thought he had it out. So he thought he had dodged a bullet, and he thought he had it out. So he went on about his business and didn't clean the rest of it up, just left it there. And it, was an, it was Easter, and I had been uh, at the Easter services, and I went home. <clears throat> we were having dinner together, and uh, all of a sudden, there's a knock on our door, and a neighbor's over and says, your porch is on fire again. <laughs> and I looked at Lori and said, again? And she just said, talk to your son. Just talk to your son. <laughs> and so he thought he had gotten it out, right? But um, it came back up. Right where he was uh, tearing it down is a gas line. There's a fireplace right on the inside wall and the gas line to turn it off and on. He could have blown himself and us to smithereens. Right on the inside is that fireplace. We love that fireplace. Man, fire in a fireplace is cool, isn't it? Don't you love a fireplace? It's just cathartic. You can look at it. It's powerful. It's hot. It's powerful. Uh, It's warming. Beautiful when it's in a fireplace, but fire outside a fireplace gets pretty dangerous, doesn't it? God has given us this great, powerful, burning hot, passionate gift of sex. Inside marriage, man, there's nothing like it. It's beautiful. This great gift he's given to us. It's powerful. It's passionate. It's pleasurable. It allows marriages to thrive. But you take it out of the context of marriage. That like that fire outside the fireplace. What happens? We all have lists of people. It has destroyed. Families, it's blown up. See, God's gift has to be used and enjoyed God's way. And we as Christians, see, we have to lead the way on that. We have to make sure in our words and our actions, first our hearts, that we are truly dealing with this gift of sex God's way. And now we have a great opportunity to share with others God's design of what so many have perverted. So, Father, I pray that you'd first help us to work in our own lives. Where there is sin in any form or fashion in this way, Lord, help us right now to repent of it. That means to change it, to confess it to you, maybe confess it to another man if we're a man or a woman if we're a woman, and and build build the guards around it to to guard our heart with all vigilance. Whatever we have to do, whatever we have to do, Lord, give us the, the commitment to do that. Not just as we're sitting here now, but as we leave. Help us to do the things we need to do. And help us be those who know your word, know the relevancy of your word, that is truth, And help us to be able to communicate that clearly 
to the, to the, to the issues of our culture. Particularly, Lord, right now, this issue of sexual harassment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking into this for us today. May we take your words and share them with others who need to hear them. In Christ's name, amen.